can start. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You want to ask me how I'm doing? Thank you for asking. I'm doing great. I'm doing great because this happened on Friday. And a lot of you already know this. But uh, our son Josh, who is 24, just makes me want to cry. Happy tears. Uh, asked Kristen Holdorf to marry him. And she said yes. She's nuts, but she said yes. And we're very grateful for this for a number of reasons. First of all, no, this isn't first of all. One added bonus is that I get to be related to Carrie Novacek for life. And anyone who knows Carrie and knows me knows that's probably dangerous. My only real concern about this wedding is when they say, uh, if anyone here has just cause why these two should not be married, somebody's going to go, let's rethink this. Do we really want Carrie and Amy in the same family? forever. But uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, I'm very thrilled, mostly because uh, Kristen is a wonderful young woman, uh, perfect fit for our son Josh, which was not going to be easy to find. And, uh, and we get the added bonus, uh, I get the added bonus of being a grandma. Uh, Kristen's five-year-old son, Aiden, has already said to them a month ago, um, I can't become a keezer until you guys get married. <laughs> and he's uh, told his, uh, uh, Kristen's cousin, he said, uh, Josh's mom, which is what I've been called for more than a year now, Josh's mom is going to be my grandma. And I'm here to tell you, Josh's mom is his grandma right now, right now. I love that boy. So we are, we are just thrilled about this and uh, grateful to God for bringing the two of them together. Um, there's a verse in the Old Testament, I believe in Isaiah or Jeremiah, that God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And we don't have enough time for me to tell you how true that verse is in both of their lives. So we are very grateful. Do you have any questions for me? What's what? What's the victory? Oh, what's the fig tree? You did, well... Did you, did you like, like you didn't, like, I didn't explain it enough in the lesson? Is that... Oh, shoot, man. So it's just in my head that the fig tree makes sense? Okay, I'm not going to spend much time on it today because I thought it would totally make sense. So here's the thing. In the Old Testament, uh, sometimes prophets would give an acted-out prophecy. That's what Hosea is all about. It's an acted-out prophecy when Hosea marries Gomer, this prostitute, and keeps having to rescue her. God is saying, this is what I'm doing for you. So the fig tree is an acted-out prophecy where he does to the fig tree what is going to happen to the temple. That, that the temple, which is withered at its roots, will be judged as the fig tree was judged. He was judging the fig tree for having the appearance of fruitfulness, and yet it was fruitless. It appeared to be um, a, a working fig tree, and in truth, it was a worthless fig tree. And I will talk about what it is that God is judging in the temple, but, but, but we're going to read in coming chapters where Jesus is going to tell his disciples, the disciples are like, Dude, this temple is amazing, and it was an amazing structure. And Jesus is going to say, I tell you, not one of these stones will be standing on the other. And that happened in A.D. 70. I mean, that judgment physically came 
in A.D. 70. And there haven't been sacrifices since because those sacrifices don't work. Jesus was sacrificed once for all. Don't need lambs anymore. No need for that anymore. And so that's the judgment that's coming. And the fig tree uh, was, he didn't just get angry and go, dude, I'm hungry. That wasn't what he was doing. He was saying, look, the judgment that's coming, um, this this is an acted out parable or acted out prophecy on the judgment that's coming for the temple. I hope that helps. That was the purpose of it. That's the purpose of the way Mark framed it. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get there. Emily. I'm really not going to. Everything you ask for in prayer, you will receive. Um, But because we've talked about this before, and maybe it's been in other studies, but here's the thing. Do you know that verse that says, um, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And when I was a young believer, the desire of my heart was a husband. So I'm like, okay, so all I got to do is figure out this delight thing. And if I figure out this delight thing, I get a husband. That's not what that's about. That's about that when I delight myself in the Lord, what is the desire? Who is the desire of my heart? Jesus. And when I ask for more of him, will I get more of him? <laughs> you betcha. You betcha. And so when we, are, when we are delighting ourselves in the Lord, when we are d- disciples in the sense that Jesus has called us to be disciples, we ask for things that are in keeping with his will. We understand God's will. I've heard it said that God's will is what we would ask for if we knew everything God knows. So it isn't about, I'll get whatever I ask for. And in there are other verses that, you know, Scripture interprets Scripture. Other verses throughout Scripture that talk about when you ask for things in keeping with God's will. So it isn't like, you know, may a brand new Mercedes be waiting for me when I get outside today. It's, it's in keeping with God's will. Uh, and as we walk with Jesus, we understand what that is more. My prayers are different now than they were 35 years ago. And they should be um, as I've walked with Jesus. Any other questions? Okay, well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today and, and for this, this lesson. And uh, Father, that your word stretches us and it makes us think and it challenges us. And sometimes, sometimes it upsets us. And so, Father, today as we walk through uh, this, this passage of Scripture, may you just um, endear it to our hearts. May you hide it in our hearts uh, so that we might learn and be ready to learn what you have to teach us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in chapter 10, we'll just uh, let Aiden uh, give way to this ugly map. Uh, In chapter 10, we have the beginning of the journey to Jerusalem. And I know that it's really hard to see on this, but, oh, no, 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 go back. Okay, press this one. Okay, here's Jerusalem down here. Here's Capernaum up here. This is where Jesus starts. And and it begins to talk about how Jesus is going to teach his disciples along the way. The disciples are following Jesus along the way to Jerusalem. Um, And and, uh, Jesus takes something of a a circuitous route with his 
disciples on this. He's done that before. He's done that intentionally before. It's impossible for us to know exactly why. What he's going to do is he's going to start at Capernaum. Amy, stop hitting that one. Uh, He's going to start at Capernaum and probably go like this, but instead of going straight down to Jerusalem, he's going to cross the Jordan and go through Perea, come back through Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, why? We don't know. There's several possibilities. Most Jews who weren't Jesus did that anyway because they skirted Samaria. They did not, out of shaking off the the dust off your feet sort of hatred for Samaria, they went around Samaria. And he may have been doing that, except for in John 4, he intentionally goes through Samaria. That's how he met the woman at the well. So Jesus wasn't the kind of guy that skirted Gentile or Samarian territory. It's possible that Jesus intentionally wanted to go through Perea, I'm going to get it right this time, because this was part of Herod Antipas's uh, territory, the guy that divorced his wife to marry his niece and yucky stuff and cut off John's head. And he may have wanted to actually be there when he was confronted by the Pharisees. That may have been intentional. It may be that he just wanted more time to teach more people. It may be that the time wasn't right yet for him to arrive in Jerusalem and he was just biding his time. Uh, We can't know for sure, but we know that he took this sort of uh, circuitous route to get there. The theme, the primary theme of this entire chapter is discipleship. Jesus has told his disciples to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow him. He's told them to have salt among yourselves, to live in loving fellowship with each other. And so the question here becomes, how do we do that? How do we do those things? And specifically in this chapter, how do we do that in our marriages, with our children, and with our possessions? And then chapter 10 also contains the third prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, and, and Jesus, in this prediction, is going to tell his disciples that follower, tell his disciples that discipleship is about sacrifice and service, which is precisely what Jesus himself did. Discipleship is following Jesus. So we begin with this teaching on divorce, um, and sort of on divorce. He's asked about divorce. Jesus teaches, however, about marriage. And here's what it says. Jesus then left that place, probably meaning Capernaum, and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, the crowds of people, that's the circuitous route. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, it was lawful in Judaism. So the question really is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? for whatever reason. And we'll talk about that in a minute. What did Moses command you, he replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's, those are quotations. The first one from Genesis 1, 27. The second one from Genesis 2, 24. Uh, 
and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So, um, let's put this into context. And I wrote a lot about this in the study, so I'm not going to say a lot about it. Uh, if you have further questions about the context, look back at the study. But the Pharisees here are not interested in Jesus' opinion on divorce, on marriage, on anything. They are just hoping for an answer that will get him in trouble. They are just trying to entrap him with a question. Happened a lot in the Gospels. And Jesus is not interested in adding fuel to the fire of their opposition to him. In fact, he doesn't even talk about divorce. He talks about marriage because he wants to recover God's design for marriage. That's his purpose in answering this question. Now, divorce in Jesus' day was legal, both for Jews and for Romans. The only question was, for what reason? What, what, for what reason could you legally divorce a spouse? Rabbinic teaching on this ran from Everything from you can only divorce in the case of adultery to if she cooks a back bad meal, send her away. Honestly, there was a rabbi that said if she gives you a bad meal, you can divorce her. So there, there, were, there was wide-ranging opinion on it. Uh, in Judaism, divorce was exclusively the right of men. Women could not, wives could not divorce their husbands, even though Jesus puts that in here, doesn't he? but not in Judaism. And women had very few rights within their marriage, only what the Torah gave them. And that was twisted by later rabbinic teaching. In fact, Malachi 2.16 says this, I hate divorce, says the Lord. That was later interpreted by some rabbis to say, if you hate her, divorce her. People do the same thing with scripture today, by the way, and twist it. So the Pharisees' concern here, they're not concerned with God's will on matters of marriage and divorce. But Jesus is. And he exposes the Pharisees' twisted thinking. The law on divorce, Jesus says, was given because they had hard hearts. Sclerosis of the heart, one theologian called it. And, and he's referring here, the, the Pharisees here refer to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I had you read that this week. And he says they have, that was given because their hearts were hard. In other words, it was given because of their persistent rebellion against God. Kind of like a parent trying to, to remove the worst dangers, trying to baby-proof the house, knowing all the while that the kid's going to find something and do something stupid. I have a friend that calls it, uh, Kim Sterling Riley, calls it MMB, mobility minus brains. Because I'm telling you right now, your three-year-old, before you can catch him, is going to take two chairs that are back-to-back and decide he's going to do a parallel bar routine on him and he's going to go head first into the glass table. That's going to happen. I've watched it happen and also spent time at the emergency room afterwards. So the law was given because of their hard hearts. They were going to do something stupid. 
And so God attempted to mitigate the damage with this law. But the law says nothing. That Deuteronomy 24 says nothing about God's intention for marriage. And so Jesus appeals to a precedent higher than Moses, a higher precedent than Moses. Jesus bases his answer on the order of creation in verses 5 through 9. God's intention for marriage from the beginning was one man, one woman for life. Took on new meaning in our state yesterday. But that is God's, that is, that is uh, to me, not to everyone, inarguably what Genesis says. Which means the implied answer to the question um, that, that uh, they ask Jesus is no. A man can't divorce his wife for any and every reason, at least not legally. Uh, and, and Jesus also says that it is God who joins the husband and wife together. So that cannot and should not be taken lightly by human beings. Jesus here gives unheard of respect to women. Notice that they are equals in the marriage. Male and female he made them, both in God's image. And for that reason, the man shall leave his parents and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice that the man's obligation, the husband's obligation to his wife was more important and even superseded his obligation to his parents in ancient Judaism. That's one of the top ten, ladies. That's in the Ten Commandments. Honor your parents. And Jesus says, you know what? And Genesis says, you're committed first to your wife. That is your primary commitment. So are there, what are the lawful grounds for divorce. Are there lawful grounds for divorce? Remember, that's not the topic here. Jesus doesn't even bring that up here in Mark because his topic is the permanence of marriage. His topic is stay married. Um, but elsewhere in Matthew, in Matthew 5.32 and in Matthew 19.9, Jesus cites adultery as a lawful, valid reason for divorce. And I think it is at least plausible uh, to extrapolate from that that this would include other serious betrayals of the marriage vows, like abuse, physical abuse particularly, or perhaps persistent, ongoing, uh, unrepentant uh, addictions. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.15 that if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to leave, let him leave. Uh, and he would say that, he, he basically calls that a valid reason. Now, it is the unbeliever that is doing the divorcing in that, and in the interest of full disclosure, he goes on to say, but don't remarry. Uh, and so that touches on the next topic that Jesus makes just alone with the disciples. So is all remarriage adultery? Is all remarriage, in essence, sin? Well, on the face of, us, face of it, here, in this passage, that answer would have to be yes. But I'd like to make a couple brief points on this. First of all, remember that Jesus' primary point in this passage is the permanence 
of marriage, of the marriage union, of the marriage covenant, not divorce. And when is it lawful and when is it not? Not necessarily remarriage uh, in the first part of it. Um, And again, I believe that it is at least plausible that Jesus would not term a remarriage after a valid lawful divorce as adultery. That would be in keeping with Jewish law. If you divorced for a lawful reason, such as adultery, then you could remarry. Um, And he may be addressing only the kind of divorce that the Pharisees were advocating, any and all reasons. So is it okay for him to remarry if he divorces his wife because she doesn't cook good? Which he probably should have figured out before he married her, but hey. you know. So he may just be addressing... Those, uh, those kinds of divorces. But even if that is not the case, even if what Jesus is saying here is that all remarriage after divorce is sin, please remember, there is forgiveness for all sin. Remarriage is not an unforgivable sin. Jesus offered salvation and forgiveness both to the woman at the well who'd been married five times, that's in John 4, and was living with a man at the time, and to the woman caught in adultery in John 8. We need to offer grace to those who are divorced and grace to those who remarry. Jesus does, and we need to too. And whatever your interpretation of these verses, first of all, I would say, as has been said many times, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things charity, that we need to understand that there might not be agreement on this. And that's okay. This isn't an essential um, doctrine. But whatever our interpretation of this passage, clearly God does not want us to use this passage as a weapon against those who are already wounded. Now, God does hate divorce. That's what Malachi tells us. And I believe he hates all divorce. Because all divorce wounds. And all divorce is birthed out of sin. Um, Divorce is sin. At least in some cases, and perhaps in all cases, at least it is sin on one side or the other. Because it is the breaking of a covenant made before God. And because it is birthed out of sin, whether that's marital unfaithfulness, or whether it is selfishness, or whether it is hardness of heart. Some sin has led to that divorce. But, as Dr. Edwards says, God offers forgiveness in Christ. This is what Dr. Edwards says. The "The question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of Christ to discipleship in marriage. That is what Jesus is calling us to as followers of Christ who are married. If we have time at the end, I want to return to this topic. But right now, let's move to blessing of children. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. We we don't understand the scandal of this in Jesus' day. 
for him to take these children, to lovingly take these children into his arms and bless them. That is not the way children were viewed in Jesus' day. There was no supposed, you know, they're so sweet, they're so precious, they're so, no. In fact, let me read this to you now. Child, this is what Edward says. Childhood was typically regarded as an unavoidable interim between birth and adulthood. There was none of this. They're so honest. They're so sweet. They're so, there was none of that. There's none of that. And look how Jesus treated them. Now, what about this blessing thing? Why were they bringing their, their children for a blessing? Well, first of all, the passing of a blessing was a time-honored ritual in Judaism. Remember Isaac and, or remember Isaac and how Esau and Jacob vied for his blessing? And Jacob, I'm, I have trouble getting past what Jacob did and what Jacob's mom did. But, you know, they, they, wanted, they both wanted their father's blessing. They were twins, and they both wanted their father's blessing. And we see that over and over again in scripture. But more importantly, these crowds had learned something. These parents had learned something, and that is that Jesus' touch brings blessing. It brings healing. It brings wholeness to people. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says we have to come as a child? Well, I don't think that means what what we think it means, what I've just said, that it has something to do with these supposed virtues of, of childhood. That word for little child is pedia, and it means someone, a child who's very young. It could even mean infant. So these were little, little children. These were, these were babies that were coming, uh, that parents were bringing to Jesus. When Lane was little, every single morning, he was my morning person. He still is, goes to bed early, gets up early. Every single morning, he would get out of his bed, he would come in, and he would get into my bed. Now, I liked to believe that he just wanted a little cuddle time with mommy before the day began. That's what mommy wanted. But in truth, what he knew was he wasn't getting breakfast without me. He knew he needed me, and I was his meal ticket. And so he came to me every single morning. I cannot say this better than Dr. Edwards, so I'm going to let Dr. Edwards say it. Children, particularly little children, are often praised for their innocence, spontaneity, and humility. It is often assumed that it is because of these qualities that Jesus commends them. The emphasis in this brief story falls on the children themselves rather than on their virtues, real or imagined. If we assume that Jesus commends children because of their innocence, purity, or even spontaneity, then we must conclude that the disciples' acceptability in God's kingdom depends on similar virtues. But as Mark's depiction of the disciples disciples makes repeatedly clear, that is exactly what they are not, nor are we. We are not innocent and eager, but slow, disbelieving, and cowardly. Oops, sorry. In this story, children are not blessed for their virtues, but for what they lack. They, they, They come only as they are, small, powerless, without sophistication, as the overlooked and dispossessed of society. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring, and whatever the child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in himself or herself. Little children are paradigmatic disciples for only empty hands can be filled. That's beautiful. And it is, as we understand our need for Jesus, how desperately we need him, how utterly dependent we are on him, that we are closest to the kingdom of God. 
Ladies, God works most powerfully in weakness. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians. Because it is in our weakness that we depend on him. And that is discipleship. Finally, I want you to notice two things about this. First, Jesus affords these children tremendous care and affection. He values them. Both wives and children are to be respected and cherished. And that was a thought that was unheard of in Jesus' day. Jesus does indeed love the little children. And secondly, immediately on the heels of Jesus' teaching on divorce or the permanence of marriage comes this teaching on children. And maybe that's because children often bear the brunt of the chaotic and sometimes nuclear fallout of a divorce. Well, then we move on to this story about the... um, the rich young ruler, and I'm not going to read all of this, but this guy, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, falls on his knees and says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is, A, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And B, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. So he comes and he calls him good teacher, and Jesus kind of brushes him off, doesn't he? He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. That should have been a clue to this guy. Because this guy believes he is good. He's kept the commandments. He is not good. No one is. And then he says, what must I do? He assumes that there is something that he can do to to be saved. That his salvation depends on his own goodness. It does not. He assumes that he can earn it or perhaps buy it. He cannot. And Jesus says he lacks something. Keeping the commandments is not enough. Here's Jesus' answer. In a nutshell, become a disciple. Put away all that would vie for for your allegiance to me, in this case wealth, and follow me. Jesus' point is, is that if we want to have eternal life, it hinges completely on our response to Jesus. We cannot earn it. It is a gift of God that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship is too much for this man, and so he walks away very sad. And the disciples must have been shocked. I'm sure the disciples were like, Dude, do you know how much money he had? We could have used that. Do you see our coffers? Judas is bilking out of them. We need more money. I'm sure they were shocked that Jesus didn't say, sure, yeah, just give us a little 10% and we'll be fine. It's not what Jesus said. And it's radical. And then he goes on to say that it is, it is difficult to see how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God All things are possible. You know what? If we look at this story and we say the point of the story is that you're supposed to sell everything you have, we've missed the point. Because there's nothing we can do to be saved. It completely depends on God. Wealth is deceptive. We come to rely on it 
instead of on God. We begin to think we are self-sufficient. There's no such thing. Luther's last words were, we are all of us beggars. And we need to realize that. Jesus says that wealth is an impediment to faith. Because those who are ruled by money cannot be ruled by God. You cannot be ruled by two things at once. Jesus said that. So the disciples go, well, then who can be saved? And then Jesus gives them the good news. It doesn't depend on us anyway. If it did, we'd all be sunk. Salvation comes from God alone, who with him all things are possible. God can save even the most wretched wretch. And praise God for that. Then Peter jumps in, because that's what he's best at, and he says, we've left everything for you. Um, I love Peter. Have I said that before? This is what Peter's saying. Look what I've done for you. Doesn't that mean anything? And Jesus' answer is this. Your sacrifice, our sacrifice, will be rewarded in this life and in the life to come. That doesn't save us. It is our reward, but it doesn't save us. It is our response to the fact that we've been saved. And then Jesus says in verse 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. The disciples need to learn how to make themselves last. Indeed, we all need to learn that, don't we? I need to learn it. It's easier said than done. Well, then we come to this third passion prediction. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later... He will rise. So the destination is finally revealed. They're along the way to where? To Jerusalem. And they are on the way with Jesus leading them there. And Jesus gives even more specific detail here about his death. He will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He will be handed over to Gentiles. He will be mocked, spat upon, and flogged. Jesus is drawing nearer to his death, and he knows it but the disciples are no nearer to understanding what's happening. Because James and John, you know, I've always thought of John as this really sweet disciple. You know what I'm saying? Love, love, love. It's all about love. I mean, he just seemed like this sweet little wishy-washy guy. But Jesus, remember, named John and his brother James the sons of thunder. I think the Holy Spirit, by the time he wrote those letters, had gotten a hold of John and changed him a little bit. And this kind of proves the whole Sons of Thunder thing because they come up to Jesus and they say this. We have a question for you and we want you to say yes before we ask you the question. You tell me. If your kid came to you and said that to you, what would you say? What do you want me to do? Which is exactly what Jesus says. He knows, by the way, what they're going to ask. And what they answer is, we want to be in the positions of power, the positions of honor, on your right and on your left, when you come into your glory, which they thought when you defeat the Romans is what that meant. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die soon. And they take that 
and come back with, hey, we want to have positions of honor uh, when you come into your glory, when you defeat the Romans. And Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup that I have to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I have to be baptized with? That, those are metaphors. Those are symbolic of suffering, of his suffering. And he tells the disciples, indeed, they will suffer. But it won't be the same thing as Jesus' suffering. It won't be the same kind of suffering. Because he will be, Jesus will be a ransom for many. And that's something no other human could ever do. So Jesus gives them corrective teaching again about what discipleship means. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John because they're like, "Uh, dude, that's what we wanted. We wanted to be there. That wasn't because they thought what the question was wrong. It was just they'd got beaten to the punch. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The essence of discipleship is service and sacrifice. Denying self, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. And that is the essence of discipleship because it is the path Jesus followed. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to suffer and to die in order to be a ransom for us. That word ransom means paying a price to free someone from debt or slavery. Jesus pays a debt that we cannot pay ourselves in order to free us from sin and death, which means I belong, we belong entirely to him. 1 Corinthians 16, or 6, excuse me, 19 and 20 say this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your entire life. We belong to Jesus Christ. He has paid our ransom. Well, I wish I had time for Bartimaeus. Um, But as they came to Jericho, there was a route from Perea into Jericho where beggars would line up just before the Passover to try and get money from people as they passed by on their way to Jerusalem. And and Bartimaeus was one such beggar. And uh, we learn his name. Bartimaeus means son of one who is worthy of honor. Bar meaning son of, Timaeus meaning worthy of honor. Ironically, the people treated Bartimaeus with contempt. Jesus, on the other hand, the Son of God, stopped dead in his tracks for this man. Jesus was according honor to this man who had been shown dishonor. And Mark also is by naming him the only one healed in all of the Gospels who is named. And so Mark is also according him honor. And at the end of this healing, we see a picture of a true disciple. Bartimaeus immediately leaves everything behind to follow Jesus along the road. Well, then we come to the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and this is Palm Sunday. You all have, uh, okay, let's, 
get to it. Um, you all have, have heard this before. I'm not going to read it, but this passage is filled with messianic prophecy. Jesus is riding on a colt. That is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. He is riding a colt that has never been ridden. In the Old Testament, that is what kings rode, an animal that had never been ridden. He is coming down from the Mount of Olives. That fulfills Zechariah 14.4. And the people get it. There's more than that, by the way. The people get it. Their response shows that they believe that they are, they are um, accepting and they are receiving a Messiah. They say, Hosanna, save us. Now, they don't mean from our sin and death. They mean save us from the Romans. Uh, Messiah would be the successor of David. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who is the successor of David, is basically what they say. That's who, they believe that would be Messiah. But, so, so the messianic mania, the fever, is, is at fever pitch here but they expected a different kind of Messiah. I've always wondered how that crowd could turn so quickly. I believe it is as they saw him arrested and, and being mocked and spat upon and ready to be crucified, they were like, wait a minute. This dude isn't going to save us. And they turned on him. Um, and, and so that's how we went from this on Sunday to the cross on Friday in the reaction of the crowd. But even this was necessary for God's plan to be fulfilled. But there's an anticlimax at the end of this, or so it seems. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He walks in. He walks out. What's that about? Well, Jesus is setting the stage. He knows what's coming next with the fig tree and the overturning of the tables. Jesus isn't there just casually looking around going, wow, this really is a big place. I can't even believe it. He's not doing that. He is intentionally surveying the temple grounds. One theologian called it a commanding survey. And we learn that it is late, which it was late in the day, but I also believe Mark is saying that time is running out for the temple as well. Jesus is again fulfilling prophecy in doing this. In Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Messiah will come to the temple in judgment. And that is coming sooner than anyone could have expected. So this next story is the fig tree story, and I wish we had more time. Um, but this, this story is, is a... Um, is a sandwich again. And we have the first part where he sees a fig with leaves and no figs. He curses it. They goes to the temple. He turns over tables. The next day they come back and the fig tree is withered. So this is not, a, well, let's read this first. Let's read this part first. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, the point in this is often assumed to be that he's judging, that Jesus is judging the ongoing commerce in the temple. I don't think that's the point of it. Because of the sandwich, because of the fig tree, 
That is not what's happening here. Certainly there was corruption, and certainly Jesus would have opposed that, but that is not the main point. This occurs in the court of the Gentiles, and that was not considered a place of prayer or a place of worship. It was considered as a place where unwanted Gentiles could come, but no further. If he were cleansing the Holy of Holies, maybe that would be the point. But that isn't the point. The point is that one theologian called it like a square outside a cathedral in the court out and where anyone can go and where it's not, but it's not considered sacred space. The court of the Gentiles was not considered sacred space. Instead, I believe this is about judgment on the temple and on, on the temple's purpose in, uh, of uh, the temple's purpose by Jesus. Messiah has come to judge the temple. He's come to the temple in judgment. Um, and, and what is he judging? He is judging the leadership that ignores real need, the real needs of the people. He comes in judgment of a system that rules people out on the basis of race. Um, I read one theologian that said that the Jews thought the Messiah would, would clear the temple of Gentiles. Actually, he cleared the temple for Gentiles. Uh, and so he's judging the fact that they have left Gentiles out. He comes in judgment of a system that does not truly cleanse people of sin. And he calls it a den of robbers. The temple is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations, for all people. Instead, it has become a hideout. That's what a robber's den is. It has become a hideout for leaders who are bilking people both financially and spiritually. Jesus isn't cleansing. He isn't reforming the temple. He's overthrowing it, which is why when he dies, the curtain of the temple will be torn in Well, what about this poor fig tree? Um, Both before and after the verses we just read. It is an acted out prophecy tied to the temple. The temple, which was spiritually withered at its roots, will be judged just as the fig tree was. And then in these verses, these last verses, Jesus tells us what truly matters. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. And we're going to move on in the interest of time. Um, and in the last verses we read this week, Jesus' authority is questioned. And, and the Pharisees get it. The Pharisees get that he's questioning their authority because they begin looking for a way to, to kill him. Um, and they're questioning by what authority ha- does he do these things? Does he clear the temple? Does he, um, does he teach? And he asked them a question, which was a typical rabbinical thing to do, and they won't answer it. They won't give an honest answer. So he refuses to answer himself. You can get the fill in the blanks from the thing on the table there. I want to go back. I want to go in reverse here. I just want to end talking a little bit about marriage. I'm not a marriage counselor. I've been married 28 and a half years. Uh, I would much rather give advice on marriage than parenting <laughs> uh, because I think that Jeff and I have, by and large, honored God in our marriage. But let's talk a little bit about discipleship and marriage. And as a reminder to myself, I put a couple of young-looking people up there. That's August 10th, 1986. I know some of you are like, I wasn't even born. I just want to give you some practical ideas on how do we live out discipleship in our marriages. First one, pray for your husband. I heard years ago that it is almost impossible to feel animosity towards someone for whom you are praying. 
great idea. Pray for your husband, especially if he is not a believer. Secondly, pray with your husband. I believe this is arguably the most intimate thing that two people can do together. Pray with one another. Heard a wonderful story we don't have a lot of time for years ago of a woman who said, my marriage was dead. When I say dead, I mean I didn't care when he came. I didn't care when he left. I didn't care if he was there. I didn't care if he was not. My marriage was dead. And then she came to know Jesus, and he came to know Jesus. And she said, but our marriage was still dead. As far as I was concerned, I had my Jesus, and he had his. And then there was uh, a horrible thing that happened within their circle of friends, and they decided to pray together. And she said, an amazing thing happened as I prayed with my husband. God quickened my dead marriage. And she says, it's a good thing. We have a God who specializes in, in resurrecting that which is dead. Pray with your husband. Thirdly, seek to serve rather than to be served. When both marriage partners seek to have their own needs met, nobody gets their needs met. When both marriage partners seek to meet the other person's need, both do. But, but, and I know this is hard. Trust me, I know this is hard. Seek to meet your husband's needs regardless of what he is doing for you. Fourthly, I have heard it said that the best thing you can do for your children is to love their father. That is true for fathers as well. And then finally, grow in your own walk with Jesus. You know the triangle illustration. We're down on these bottom apexes. As we grow closer to Jesus, we grow closer to one another. Remember that God is the Lord of your marriage. Your covenant is with each other, but it is also with him. The words I said on August 10th, 1986, were this, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses, and there were a lot of them, to be your loving and faithful wife. I just want to end. I know we're really at the end here, but I just want to read these words over you. If you need to go get your children, go get your children. The words are on your table. This is a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman about this idea of discipleship and marriage. Echoes of careless words and slamming doors are still ringing in the night. I've taken my side and you've taken yours. We're both wrong and we're both right. Once again, misunderstanding has turned us into enemies. I will forgive you. Will you forgive me? Love and learn. That's what we will do. Love and learn through the flood and through the flame. This world will turn and the seasons will change, but there's nothing we can't get through as long as we both hold on to the hand of God in each other and take a lifetime to love and learn. We start out believing we know love so well, but through the years we find true love is a story only time can tell, and God has made this lifetime yours and mine. To love and learn, that's what we will do. Love and learn through the flood and through the flame. This world will turn and the seasons will change, but there is nothing we can't get through as long as we both hold on to the hand of God and each other and take a lifetime to love and learn. So until that day comes when one of us has to lay the other into the arms of Jesus, I will be with you. You will be with me. To love and learn, that's what we will do. This world will turn, the seasons will change, but there's nothing we can't get through as long as we both hold on to the hand of God in each other and take a lifetime 
will take a lifetime to love and learn. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. It can be hard, but it is also good. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies. I'm sorry you're late.